Luke 14, starting in verse 25, and I'm not going to start reading yet, so you got a minute to get there. I'm going to start with a question, and I need to make sure you're all engaged with the question. Everybody there? Ooh-wee. All right. So let's say, hypothetically, you know a couple, they're living together, they're not married, they're sleeping together, you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. As you share the gospel, the aspect of them living together, sleeping together, should that come up? Is that a, a, an issue that's central to the gospel? Or is that something you, you kind of punt down the road for the Holy Spirit to deal with at another time? I want to know the answer. We're going to dialogue a little bit. I'm in no rush. I got nothing nowhere to go. I love that. What, what's your intention is critical to it. Are you bothered by their behavior personally? Or is there something more at play? Now, careful, you know what I, when I ask a question like this, it's a heavy loaded question, amen? amen. So what do you think? Do, do you bring it up? Do you not bring it up? Could turn them off to the gospel, couldn't it? Yes. Now, let me make it even more tricky. Are we saved by grace through faith, not by works? So ultimately, are they saved because they stopped living together and sleeping together, or are they saved by the finished work of Christ and Christ's work alone? So it would seem like, as we're discussing and debating, you might want to punt that topic because this, the, the gospel isn't do the right thing to be saved, it's turn to Christ to be saved, amen? But if I asked a question differently and I asked, would Jesus bring it up? And interestingly, if he gave us a text that showed us exactly what he would do, I guess our opinion doesn't really matter a whole lot, does it? And I, and I want to scare you a little bit here because I'm going to show you in this text, Jesus would and does bring it up. And if you don't understand why he does, and bring, does bring it up, you will miss the reality of the gospel. This is one of the most disconcerting, discomforting, disorienting, unsettling texts you will come across in the entirety of the book of Luke. But if you land it well, you see the robustness of the gospel, the magnificence of grace from where you have come to where you are in Christ. But if we don't understand this, we miss the gospel. Now stick with me here a second. What if we shared the gospel based on what we think as opposed to what Jesus says? Might we actually not be sharing a gospel that saves, but a false gospel? Bear with me here, would you? Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So, therefore, 
Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what's going on in this text? Well, you can spend all day right here if you like. As Christians in a Western context, we are really good with the objective facts of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and died the atoning, died the only atoning death, raised on the third day, ascended, interceding, will return. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Can I get an amen? These are objective truths of the gospel. They are not less than what we need to affirm and understand to be saved, but there is more to salvation, for the devil himself will affirm everything I just said. You understand that? Truly God, truly man, born a virgin, lived the perfect life, died an atoning death, raised on the third day, ascended, interceding, will return. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You must turn to him to be saved. Objective truths of the gospel. And we've seen these build all the way through Luke, and then all of a sudden Jesus says, but here's the danger. Affirming objective truths does not equal salvation. Salvation is saving faith, equals objective facts plus subjective attitude. What do I mean by that? And this is, I want you to bear with me because we all have a preconception of what the gospel is. But Jesus declares very clearly to us the cost of discipleship. And we can really mess this up. We can, we can go to that couple living together and say, if you don't stop living together, you will spend eternally apart from God and we have lost the gospel. But there's a reason that it's central to the gospel. We bring up what's going on because Jesus is calling for something here. And, and look at this. And, and do me a favor. Do show up on Thursday to engage into this because this is some meaty stuff. But I'll give you this freebie today. We're going to go back. Renee, Renee will remember this. Even Patty will remember this. Way back in the day, 13 years ago, remember we used to sit in a small group around a table and people could throw up the hand? Throw a hand if we get real sketchy and you get utterly and totally confused. We'll land it, but stick with me. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Anybody hate their mama? Tyler, put your hand down. <laughs> does anybody hate their mom? Anybody hate their dad? Anybody hate their brothers? Sisters? Anybody hate yourself? What is he talking about? Well, I thought if I read scripture right, Jesus says, love one another by this, they will know that you are my disciples. He talks about loving your parents, loving your kids. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, just deal with them. Is that what the text says? No, there's another part. He even calls his, his followers to love their enemies, right? What is he talking about? Hate your mama. It's a, it's a Hebraism. It's a, it's a, a Jewish uh, way of speech. And it was common in the time, you'll even find it in scripture. Remember Genesis 29? There was a guy who had two wives, one named Leah, the other named Rachel. He loved one and hated the other. It didn't mean he actually hated his other wife, like throwing things at her, being physically and verbally abusive, no. Jacob I love, but Esau I it's a word about preference. God preferred the covenant through Jacob. Uh, Jacob loved a wife 
one over the other, he had a preference. And what Jesus is saying is, don't hate your mama like you think in the Western context. But if your primary allegiance isn't to me, over your mama, over your daddy, over your brother, over your sister, over even your very own self. Remember Luke 9, 23? Deny yourself. If I'm reading this right, and I'm looking pretty good, I'm fairly literate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, even his own life, what does it say next? It doesn't matter because it's covered by grace. Wait. No, he's going crazy. He says he cannot be my disciple. What is, what, 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 are you all, you all with me still? If you prefer your personal relationships, prioritizing them over Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. You are unfit to enter the kingdom of God. But remember, I said it's not works-based righteousness, so don't leave right now. But can we slow it down a little bit? Jesus demands a position of ultimate allegiance and loyalty in your life. What does it look like to show preference to your mama, your daddy, your brother, your sister, or yourself over Jesus? I want to slow this train down a little bit so we don't just blow by. What does it look like? Let's, let's make it a little bit more sinister so it's easier for me, right? Let's say your mama comes to town and your mama don't love Jesus and Sunday shows up. Are you going to church? Ooh, so you go inside your head. Well, I don't want to offend my mom. I don't need to go. I'm under grace. And if I offend my mom, then she's never going to come to faith. So I'm, I'm going to stay home with you, mom. Uh, we're going to skip church day, spend the time with you, because you're only in town for a little bit. Now, you know what just happened there? You just prioritized one thing over another. Now, you say, so, Pastor, are you saying if you do that, you're not saved? Not in the least. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when, when, you, get the phone, when you get the phone call from Little League, let's say, Dame got rescheduled to Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. Well, we go inside our heads and we start asking, what do I think I should do? Amen? But Jesus says, no, no. Don't be looking to yourself for advice. Deny yourself. Look to me for advice. Well, Jesus, what's the big deal if I go to a game? Isn't it by grace through faith? It is. But, but why are you choosing the game over me? Why are you choosing your mama over me? Why are you choosing your fill in the blank over me? Do you not trust that I am bigger, better, stronger? And, and why are you managing people? Why don't you actually start loving people? When we prefer something other than Jesus, we're manipulating and using it for either personal benefit or personal gain. You know, when, when you, you deal with Little League, then you get older and it's the grandkids go to Little League. Grandma, Grandpa, would you come see my game? What time's your game? Sunday at 10 o'clock. Ooh, now, now you're dealing with real raw emotion. That's your little grandbaby. Sorry, sorry, little Joey can't come. I gotta, I gotta go to church. Make it sound legalistic so Joey will never, ever love Jesus. Or do you turn to Jesus and say, well, hold on a minute, Jesus, what are you talking about? And the point I want to put in you, and the pebble I want to put in your shoe here, we'll pick it up Thursday night. There are myriad areas where we elevate our relationship with our mom, our daddy, our brother, our sister, 
in preference over Jesus. But don't stop. There's one other thing he says. Even your own self. I need some me time. Mm. I, I, I got to look out for, for, for me. I, I'd rather be by myself. I prefer this. I want this. Zip, boop. Jesus says, hang on a minute, champ, because if that's the way you want to live, you're not fit to be my disciple. Now, let's keep going because it's going to get a little uncomfortable until we recomfort it. Talks about hating. And then he goes on from hating and he talks about tower building. Just out of curiosity, has anyone built a, a tower recently on their property? We were thinking of putting one in and looking for a contractor. No recommendations. A tower is a voluntary major activity, ma major undertaking, I should say. And the point Jesus is making here is, in an honor-shame culture, before you undertake this major endeavor, make sure you are able to finish what you start, right? For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, is able to finish it, all who see him begin to mock him, saying, this man, interesting use of word, it's a mocking, condescending term, basically, like, look at this fool, he started building, pointing to Dylan, look at this fool, he started to build, and he couldn't even finish, and in an honor-shame culture, that is horrible. So what Jesus is saying, before you pray that prayer, you, you know, the, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and if you just pray this prayer, he'll forgive you, and before you pray that prayer, take a minute, and count the cost and see if you got what it takes to finish what you think you're about to start. And now, now, woo, hold on a minute. We don't share the gospel this way. But watch back to where we started. Young man, young woman, living together, sleeping together. You share the gospel with them. And here's what Jesus says. Now, before, before you are like, oh, I love this. I'm going to call out to Jesus and be saved. I want you to count the cost a minute. What's the cost? Well, here's the cost. Primary allegiance comes to me. That means if you love me, you'll stop sleeping with that person. And then you say, well, well, well I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to do that. Well, you ain't ready to enter the kingdom of God because you haven't understood the gospel. You haven't understood sin, separation, the holiness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Because if you understood that, you remember Peter when he realized who Jesus was? Away from me. Remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6? You know, we got, we got holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah, he fall down to the ground. Remember John in the book of Revelation? Wasn't even Jesus. He's dropping for the angels. He, the manifest presence of the glory of God demonstrates the holiness of God and the depravity of man. And the gospel doesn't, doesn't end there. It begins there. And until we're able to understand who Jesus is and who we are on our own and what we're doing and turn from our sin, not instantaneously, not for forgiveness, but until we can see that sin for what it is, we're not ready, worthy, able to enter the kingdom of God. John Stott. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers. The ruin of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. This is the great scandal of Christianity, so-called nominal Christianity. Now, now, here's what's really, really hard, and here's what's so unsettling about this text. You know the rules of, of Western consumeristic culture? The customer is always right. I remember my dad teaching me that. My, my dad was, he's a sales guy, right? John, when you go out to a customer, I don't care what they want, customer is always right. But dad, what, what about when they're wrong? Doesn't matter, you want their business, they're always right. 
but, but what about when they're wrong? He's talking to me like I'm an idiot, probably because I was, am, we'll move on. Customer is always right. Keep the customer happy so the customer keeps coming back for more, amen? So if you go with consumeristic Christianity, you get to drink a little bit of Bud Light, I mean gospel light, here's what happens. Customer's always right. What type of Jesus would you like? Would you like Jesus light? Would you like the Jesus who says, well, you, you keep going ahead and, and sleeping with that person and indulging in this lifestyle and, and enjoying this idol over here. You keep doing that and you pick the parts of me that you like. Church on Sunday, I mean, you work five days a week. You only get two off. Jesus, really? Well, you know, we can do a Saturday evening service if that's more convenient for you. In fact, we can have a buffet of time, 7, 9, 10, 11. We can have them all day long. And, and here's the danger of the live stream. I understand we're living in, in a, maybe we're in a pandemic or not. I don't know what the current lingo is. But, but, but here's the danger of the live stream. It's easier to stay home. We got some folks who are home, and I'm glad they're home because they ain't feeling good. Amen. I, I see you through your screen. Thank you. But you're always going to have the danger of, you ever wake up on that, that Sunday morning? You know what? I'm just grumpy today. I don't feel good today. I'm fixing to hurt somebody if I leave my house today. I'm going to stay home today. I'm going to have some coffee and some time with me. And I'll click on the screen and nobody gets to see me. Right? That, that, that's nice. But if we flip back, Jesus says, deny yourself. Why? Well, why do you show up? Do you show up to church to be saved? I sure hope not. Because we're sitting in a parking lot and I don't see any Cadillacs in front of me, right? Sitting in a parking lot doesn't make you a car. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. But Jesus does call his people to gather. Why? First and foremost, do you know what the gospel is about? In consumeristic Christianity, the gospel's about you. So the sermons you'll typically find are how to have a better marriage, how to, have, how to manage your friends, how to manage your finances, how to be fulfilled, how to have your best life now. That's not what the gospel's about. The gospel's about the glory of God. Isn't that unsettling? It should be about me, but it's not. It's about the glory of God. That we are saved by God for his glory. Now, now how magnificent is our God? He is glorified as we delight in him, as he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake and brings us eternal joy. Now, now don't miss the, the benefits of the gospel are enormous. But the foundation of the gospel is you are saved to glorify God. You will find joy through glorifying God. If you go looking for joy, you'll never find it. But if you look to glorify God, you'll find joy on the other side. But this is an, an unsettling text because Jesus is saying, I take the position, if you, if you want to receive this good news of great joy, that, that God has come into the world to save sinners by himself, from himself, and for himself, understand there's a cost to it. The gospel is a free gift, but it is only received with an empty hand. And then he goes on to this war metaphor, and he says, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one, if any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you remember back, and this is the, the downside to the speed at which I preach. Back in Luke 9, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and he began this discipleship course. And, and here's really what's going on in a nutshell. 
So you start the book of Luke, the word disciple simply means someone who follows Jesus. Physical followers. And we've seen over the, the weeks and months that some of those followers are, are people who are there for the show and the free stuff. Some are curious. They want to know who this guy is. Some, some are, are, are there to, to, to bring him harm somehow. And a very small number are people who have truly trusted in him to salvation. And so what you'll see if you read really carefully from Luke 1 to the end of the book of Acts is a progression of definition on the word disciple. So that by the time you get to the book of Acts, the word disciple becomes synonymous with Christian. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I mean, look at this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot what? Be my disciple. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come to me cannot be my what? Disciple. And you go down to the bottom, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my what? You know the difference between legalism and biblical obedience? See, here, here's what's so tricky. We tend to get it, and I've read, I've read a little bit on this. As I'm, I'm, the focus of my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, is on this very thing. The, 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 the dangers of antinomianism and, and legalism, and you see them throughout church history. In fact, uh, Dylan quoted last week the, the Westminster Confession of Faith which was written for the very purpose of the Church of England tipping into antinomianism, anti-law, cheap grace, and how to correct the errors that were creeping in before the errors became heresy. Now, what we tend to do is have really bad experience with legalism at some point in our life. Maybe we've heard the gospel in the form of, you need to do this to be saved. And we've seen, we've seen the damage of, of legalism, even in our very own church. We, we've seen people suffer through it and, and have impact on other people in the church. I remember years ago, we had a, a, a man who would, some of you remember this, remember, would sit out in the parking lot because he wouldn't come inside because he determined that there, there were people desecrating the Lord's table because they were taking communion in an unworthy manner because he was aware of sin in their life. I mean, you want to see a hot mess of legalism. And that was sad, sad for the people being impacted by this guy, but sadder even for the guy because he missed the whole gospel. You don't come to the Lord's table because you, you've, you've lived a perfect week. I mean, you got a problem if that's what you think. You come to the Lord's table totally unworthy on your own merit to come to the Lord's table, riddled with sin, recovering for sin, from sin, but forgiven by Christ. Amen? But on the other side, we've seen the cheap grace gospel. You just, you just accept the objective truths of the gospel. Who is Jesus? Have you sinned? Turn to him and be saved. Tell him you're sorry and he forgives you. Yeah, but that's just not the gospel. Because if you remember all the way back in, in Ezekiel, God talks about this and and what does he promise his people when he saves them? He says, I will, I will put, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, 25. Listen, this is the gospel that we miss and we miss so much joy in it. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. It's going to forgive us for all of our sin. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to cause us to be born anew. So forgiven from our sin, born anew, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, you do understand Jesus is just putting Ezekiel 36 into practice in this text. When you share the gospel with that couple, 
living together, sleeping together. Do you want to know how you know that the Holy Spirit has worked in their life? Because they begin to be repulsed by sin and attracted to Christ. Not in a perfect, you're, you're not, listen, if, if you get this reaction, you might want to hang in there for a moment. Oh my goodness, I never realized this. You, we, we, need to, we need to just get out of this place, find some other places to stay and never see each other again. Okay, there, there's some deeper emotional issues going on at that point. But you should see the beginnings of something where it's, oh my goodness, oh, oh, oh this isn't quite right. And, and now I'm torn because part of me, if it feels good, it must be good. Another part of me is, but, but, but God says, no, and this dishonors God, and, and, and now you're struggling, amen? And that's what you're looking for is a sign of struggle. And what Jesus is saying here is a sign of Ezekiel 36. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And here's why it's so hard. You know, you know that verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Right? Remember that way back in the day in Romans? Was it Romans? I got you all scared to answer any questions today. Part of the world we conform to is the consumeristic driving of Christianity. We live in a world, a culture of ease and comfort. I, I, I was thinking about it this week as our power goes out, and I'm irritable. And I'm irritable with a portable generator, right? I'm irritable because we bumped up over 70 degrees inside. How could someone be expected to live over 70 degrees and feel humidity on their skin? I mean, right? Friends, do you know how messed up we are with, with first world problems? And not only first world problems, Chester County first world problems. Right? We, there are so many things to enjoy. There are so many privileges and benefits at our disposal as we trust in God and rejoice in his common grace that he extends. You know, we, we have running water. We have climate control. We have cars. But, but then you get to a point of sitting outside on a Sunday. It's a little bit warm. And a mosquito landed on my leg. And you've got to stop and think because you could eat. I could go. Listen, I could go. Well, Lord, it's, it's going to be 99 degrees, not today, but it's going to be 99 degrees and 7,000% humidity. And there are those mosquitoes outside, and, and I lost power for a couple days. I ain't going out. But, but folks, you know, the Lord's people have been known throughout church history for doing things far more robustly crazy than sitting out in a humidity with a mosquito on their leg. They have been people who have stepped into, if you will, harm's way. You know who went into the leper colonies? Remember the Black Plague? I hope you don't remember it personally, but you, any history students, the Black Plague, it went on a little more than six months. You know, the Christians were often known for stepping into harm's way because they had an eternal way to glory set before them. What, what we start with is, is the, the basics. The basics. Jesus gets preference. So I started with that loaded question. But what, what, what you got to say to the loaded question is, Pastor, it's not really about what we think, it's about what Jesus says. Amen? You take that in any area of stewarding what God has entrusted to you, and here's where the gospel starts. It's all his. Every dollar you own, every possession you hold, every breath you draw, every relationship you're engaged in, it's all his for his glory. You can turn any one of those things into an idol, or you could steward any one of those things for the glory of God. And when it comes to people, the only way to love people is to love them as God calls us to. And he says, 
understand there is cost to following me. I get the place of primary allegiance. He says, now before you, you pray this prayer, right? How, how badly have we messed up evangelism when we do it in, in our cultural context? We, we, we present the objective truth of the gospel and then ask someone intellectually, do you believe these things are true? Well, I mean, that's great if they believe it intellectually, but there's another step. Do you understand that there's a cost associated with trusting in this Jesus? And, and it's kind of like back to Peter. When people start walking away, Jesus says to the disciples, you remember this, the, the, the apostles to be? Y'all going to go too? Remember what Peter said? Where are we going to go? He doesn't say, heck no, this is the best, the best gig in town, man. We're, we're, we're healthy, we're wealthy, we're wise. We got the villa on the seashore, the boat business is booming. We're sticking with you. You're doing good for us. Is that what Peter said? No, he says, where are we going to go? You're the Christ. My friends, that's, that's where we start. With Jesus, who am I going to trust? I'm an absolute idiot. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a knucklehead. I don't know. Uh, you got all the wisdom. I don't understand what you're doing, but, but where else am I going to get wisdom? Who else is going to care for me perfectly? Who else is going to provide for me perfectly? I got nowhere else to go. You're the Christ. And here's where we land this thing, and, and here's the beauty of it. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Anybody ever eat old salt that lost its taste? I've never had any. Uh, Thomas said he's here in the restaurant business. The, I don't know, does salt actually expire? Isn't, isn't it like honey? Right? You can eat salt and honey for the next 150 years. Here's what Jesus is talking about. In the Dead Sea, there was salt that was always corrupted by gypsum. And salt corrupted by gypsum, actually we would call it gypsum today, not salt. But salt corrupted by gypsum would give the appearance of salt at times. It might have a flavoring of salt at times. But eventually the saltiness went away and the gypsum corrupted it more fully and it took over. And what he's saying is, don't go with a pretense of saltiness. He goes, there, there's a requirement, there, there, there's a, a necessity to following me, and it's long-term saltiness. Be salty, my friends, is what he says. Leviticus 2.13, I'm sure you all have that, uh, that verse memorized, amen? You know what Leviticus 2.13 is? Might as well flip there, we'll see. Salt was a part of <clears throat> offerings. I find this very interesting. Hopefully you will too. And it says here in Leviticus 2.13, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. What's he talking about? Did God have high blood pressure? Salt was a symbol of permanent loyalty. And it was about covenant loyalty focusing on God's covenant loyalty far more than the loyalty of the people. But that's what's going on in Leviticus. And what Jesus is saying, guys, guys here's the beauty of Scripture. It's, it, it's one long story, and Jesus is, is coloring in the beautiful outlines of the Old Testament. But what he's saying is your life, your, your, your living as a, a holy sacrifice, make sure it's a saltiness. It, make sure it has a preservative effect. God desires to use his people as a preservative of, of righteousness in the world, demonstrating his power through our obedience. So here's where the plane lands, and, and there's so many implications and hopefully so many conversations to have because here's the thing. Do you have to obey Jesus to be saved? 
Anybody got the answer? Do you have to obey Jesus to be saved? See, it's a tricky question. You don't have to obey him to be saved. But if you're saved, you have to obey him. You see that slight little nuance? We tend to get one or the other, not both together. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by work so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 paraphrased. But do you remember what Ephesians 2, 10 says? So that we might do the good works God has prepared for us beforehand to do or to walk in. You do not obey to be saved. That's what the Pharisees thought they were doing. Jesus had some pretty harsh words for the Pharisees. But if you are saved, you obey. And do you know why? And this is where, where our Christianese gets so messed up. We'll use an expression like, well, well it, it's not me, it, 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 it's Jesus. God gets all the glory. God gets all the glory, but it's not just Jesus, it is you. It's the new you. Do you see what's going on there? You wake up on that Sunday morning. Maybe it's next week for you. You got a crink in your shoulder. You got a nuisance laying next to you. You got another nuisance coming in your door. You got the dog throws up on the floor. You go, God, I ain't going. That's, that's your flesh talking. But then you got another you, a new you, that says, deny yourself. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God loving others, and then we'll worry about you, but God will take care of you. You better start denying yourself and hating yourself and, and live like what you are. That's the point. Not do this to be saved, live like what you are. And the way we're able to be encouraged and know what we are is by seeing God work through us in our obedience. You see, the way you know that you're saved, remember we did that whole Sunday school um, series on assurance of salvation? Your assurance of salvation should not rest in your intellectual understanding of facts. It should not be less than that, but it needs to be more than that. What more than that? Seeing God at work in your life, which is primarily seen through the struggle we have day by day to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. The joy comes in understanding this or wrestling with this. Do you see God as a harsh taskmaster who's simply bigger than you and stronger than you and demands what you do and will knock you out if you don't do it? Because that's not God. But I think too often we take the commands of God and we think, I better do this because if I don't do this, he might hurt me or he might not bless me or I won't get what I want from him. You've missed the point. We've seen all these chapters of, of who God is in, in Luke and all the way through scripture. Menachem, Menachem, comfort, comfort, oh my people. You read the Psalms. God, God is a shelter, a strength. He, he's, he gives us the pinions of his wings to protect us. He leads us in paths of righteousness. He prepares a table before our, for us in the presence of our enemy. I mean, th this is God, the Father, who's adopted us as his firstborn sons so we might inherit the kingdom and live with him forever. Listen to this. God adores his children. And his commandments are from a perfect parent who always knows what's best for us and invites us slash commands us to trust him and obey him in that. Now, I love the pivot we have to Luke 15, which is my absolute favorite chapter, hands down in all of Scripture. This has three of the most magnificent parables in all of Scripture. My favorite parable coming on the back end of this, 
the parable of the prodigal son, which I think should more accurately be called the parable of the prodigal God. You have to wait a couple weeks to get to why that is. But as we see God for who he is, we begin to delight in obeying God. So the couple who's living together, or you take the rich young ruler, Jesus says to the rich young ruler, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Wrestle with this. The plane's landing, the wheels are out, the, the back things are on the wings. Yeah, I used to be a pilot for many years. Until that one bad landing, I'm kidding. If Jesus said to you, go sell everything that you have, give the money to the poor, and then come and follow me right when you're done. Who's game? What we start doing is looking for the loophole. Ah, he's joking. I get your trick, you silly guy. You wanted to see if I was a legalist. I'm not falling for that tricky, tricky Jesus. Or we go with the, uh, well, you know, I don't really own it. The car is leased, so I get to keep the lease, and the house is mortgaged, so I, I don't own it. He didn't mean sell that. And, and you know, my investments, technically, they're not mine for retirement because I'd be hitting a tax uh, penalty if I jumped on that early. So basically, it's like a few thousand bucks an hour I go, right? What about unabashed, unashamed obedience? Because here's what goes on in our heads. Jesus, you don't understand what I need. You don't understand how to care for me. You don't understand the purpose of life, Jesus. I mean, come on, man. Now, fortunately, right this very moment, he's not calling you to go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. But I have a prophetic word today. He's calling you to give it to me. That's a joke. I won't be clear. That's a joke. If I get a prophetic word, throw a tomato at me and run. If I got some new revelation, yeah, careful. But he is calling you today that your primary allegiance must be to him and not your mama, not your daddy, not your brother, not your sister, not even your own self. He's telling you, be careful, count the cost. If you really want to follow him, make sure that you have the ability to finish what you started. Now, how do you know if you have the ability to finish what you started? Well, I don't know. Are you trusting in your strength or his strength? You see, Jesus says that he will cause us to endure to the end. You look at the, the end of Jude. It is Jesus who causes his people to persevere to the end. And that's the joy. Back to Peter one more time. The end of John walking on the beach. Peter tells Jesus, you ain't going to deny me at the end. I will, I, I will cause you to persevere. And at the end, they will lead you where you don't want to go and stretch out your arms. He's going to be crucified. Here's the joy of the gospel. God will finish what he started. You will endure to the end, but to endure to the end, you need to understand the way in is primary exclusive allegiance to Jesus. And it's not that you're not loving your mama. You just started loving your mama when your primary allegiance came to Jesus. You just started loving your daddy and your brother and your sister. Heck, you even just started loving yourself in an appropriate way when you understood the purpose of life was to know God and glorify him forever. Uh, my, in, in my little book up at the house, I have about 37 questions that I was pondering as I was going through this text, and I'm really not joking with you. Some of the questions were, what does that look like to, to prioritize family or relationships over Jesus? How do, we, how do we come up with the wisdom of what that looks like? Because aren't there times like, what happens if your mama calls you on a Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, my car broke down, can you come and help me? And if you tell your mama, i got to go to church, Jesus says go to church, we will smack you when you get here and send you to fix your mama's wheel. 
we won't smack you. How do we, how do we navigate that fine line of what Jesus is calling us to and what he's not? As we share the gospel, how do we know what, what it is we're supposed to be sharing, when we're sharing it? And so, so here's the thing. You start with what you know you should be doing. You look at how you're stewarding the time, the talent, the treasure that God has entrusted to you. And you obey him with what you know. And you will come to see what you don't know little by little along the way. Amen? So we start with the question about sharing the gospel with this couple living together. And do you bring this up? Well, the first thing to start with is building a relationship with this couple. And then praying in this relationship for an opportunity to be salt and light and to boast in God before them. And then to give them a reason for the hope that you have. And as you give them a reason for the hope that you have, you present the gospel, the objective facts of the gospel and the subjective emotions that follow those facts. And you call them to trust in Christ. But it starts with building that relationship. Amen? So here's my challenge for you. Here's where I want to pick up the conversation on Thursday. Where are those areas we could praise God corporately for our ability by his power to seat him in his rightful position of ultimate priority in our lives. Other side is, where are those areas where we're failing to do so and struggling to do so? And the third question is, where are those areas we're not even aware of? Because here's a dirty little secret. You are the worst person to examine your own life. I had a great quote and I, I snapshotted it on my phone. I'll try to paraphrase it. If you surround yourself with people who only affirm you, you will be riddled with pride. If you surround yourself with people who only critique you, you will be riddled with discouragement. But if you surround yourself with people who love you enough to affirm, encourage, and critique you, you will be well established to enjoy God as he has saved you too. We are in the absolute worst position to see ourselves for who we truly are in Christ and to see how to obey Christ for his glory. And Thursday night, Dylan asked a marvelous question. Well, how do you, how do you cultivate those relationships? That's a Sunday school coming up in the very near future. But take those three challenges. If you forget what they are, you can go to the end of the live stream. You can see them there. It's on the recording. And let's dig into this. Our joy in affirming one another as believers isn't because we agree on the same intellectual facts. Our ability to affirm one another as believers in Christ is a clear, visible demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, who causes us to struggle to enjoy Christ as what he is, live as ourselves for who we are in Christ, and put the old self to death. It's Romans 7 living. It's knowing what we should do and knowing we're not doing what we should do, but grieving it because we know it's the old self who doesn't do it, but the new self who does it, right? Read Romans 7 again, the do-do-do section. And realize how much Jesus loves you, what he has called you to. Make sure that, that you have counted the cost. Make sure you understand the joy. And make sure you never coast, but you pursue Christ. You, you, you fight, you deny yourself, you take up your cross daily, we live in the midst of a spiritual battle, but we battle not against flesh and blood, but against spirit, right? We, we, we trust in Christ, we walk with Christ, and we rejoice in Christ who sustains us. Life is a battle. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow him. And as you lose your life, do you know what you find? Life. As you seek after 
joyful obedience. Do you know what you find? Joy. And one day down the road, we'll look back and we'll say to Jesus face to face as his children, just like we probably said to our mama and our daddy when we got to the age of 30, 40, or 50, you're a lot smarter than I ever realized you were. <laughs> Holy Spirit, may we see you for who you truly are. Lord Jesus, may you be not a distortion to us of your, your reality, but who you truly are. Cause us to delight in you. Cause us to trust in you. Cause us to deny ourselves. Take up our cross daily and follow you. Lord, we, we confess to so many different ways that you are not the one who receives our utmost allegiance. We rejoice, Lord, that when any of us as your children do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And Lord, I pray that we would never be complacent in our sin, but to see the joy of obedience, the joy of, of trusting in you, of following you, of glorifying you, and that you might use us to help one another, especially in the local body of which you've placed us, to remind one another of who we are in Christ, who you are, Lord Christ, so that we might live these lives you've saved us to for your glory, proclaiming your excellencies, inviting people to enter into your kingdom with the terms of surrender you have sent, as we rejoice in you and marvel at you and delight in you, knowing that through our marveling, rejoicing, and delighting, you are glorified. Father, help us, strengthen us, encourage us, guide us. Holy Spirit, I pray that what was from you today would be planted within our hearts deeply. Whatever distracting nonsense came from my lips, that that would be quickly forgotten. And Lord, I pray that you would sanctify us by your word, which is truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You'll close us out with a song, Jay?